Again, that's uh, the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The second scripture reading today is taken from the New Testament book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, which can be found on page 1166 in your pew Bibles. That's Colossians, chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, on page 1166 in your pew Bibles. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Knox. It is great to see everyone here. We are here at Knox during the season of Lent, working through a, season, uh, a series of messages Surveying the cross, taking the measure of what God is doing in the cross of Jesus Christ, in the crucifixion of Christ. Now, of anything of Jesus, what is most verifiable historically is his death. It is chronicled and recorded by historians. The four gospels that we have uh, in our Bible are give primary attention to the cross of Jesus Christ, detailing it with great um, detail. And much of Christian theology points to the cross as the unique message of the Christian faith, telling us that in the cross of Christ, in the death of Jesus, we come to know God in a way that we would never know otherwise. And so we're wondering, we're asking as we go through this, what is it that the cross is revealing of God? What is it that is teaching us, showing us that we could never otherwise know? And the scripture does this. It teaches us about the the mystery, the wonder of the cross through a a gallery of different images. And we've been taking each of those images uh, week by week and considering them. They They are sort of faith or imaginative entry points into what God is doing in the crucifixion. And today, we are going to look at a significant picture that comes to us from the courtroom. It's a legal image. 
there is a, a judicial meaning to God's activity in the cross. And as we've been saying throughout this whole series is that we're, we're not, we need all the images to fully understand and grasp and appreciate the wonder of what God is doing in the cross. So we're not going to privilege one over against the other. We're, we're holding them together. But this is, a, this is a beautiful, significant one. In the cross of Jesus Christ, some kind of penalty is being administered. Some kind of justice is being enacted. Some kind of verdict is being declared. In the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the power of God to make right all that's wrong. The Bible has a big theological word for it. It's called justification. You see that word scattered throughout the Bible. Justification is God's making right what sin has put wrong. Whatever sin has twisted or distorted or polluted or vandalized, justification, God through the cross is making it right. When it uses this image from the courtroom, Scripture is narrating human history and it's saying human history is a crime story of sorts. An incomprehensible crime has been committed. Humanity has rebelled against God. Humanity ha has wrecked this good creation of God. We've vandalized it. We've trashed it. We've committed crimes, a treason against the creator. And justice must be done. A penalty has to be paid. And the wonder of the cross is that God himself in Jesus Christ takes the penalty of all the crimes of humanity. Jesus bears the punishment that was ours. And so we, the guilty, are declared just, right, free. Our sins, our penalties, our crimes, our punishments are taken up by Jesus Christ and we are forgiven. And this courtroom image, it's a dramatic one. I mean, think of how much great film and great TV comes out of courtroom scenes. There is the, a pathos there. There is a drama. Think of the moment, you know, when the jury hands down a verdict and, and, and someone's life hangs in the balance. And I think part of the resonance of that in film and art and the power of this image scripturally is this deep instinct we all have for justice. You might remember just such a scene that played out last summer. It was the conclusion of a murder trial of a gentleman named Tim Bosma, who uh, came from the Hamilton area. It was, it was a pretty chilling murder that seemed to grip much of the southern Ontario area. Mr. Bosma was selling his truck and uh, disappeared after going on a test drive with two people who came to look at the truck. And after days of searches all over the southern Ontario area, his body was found and he had been kidnapped and he was murdered and his body was burned. And it was a horrible, it was a despicable injustice. And then after three years of, of, uh, process of judicial process and trial, this past summer a verdict came down. The trial had drawn lineups of people crowding into that courtroom, um, not just family, but, but strangers, people who, were, 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 who sensed the offense of that crime and, and just felt drawn to that trial because they had to know, is any justice going to happen? And the news of, of the verdict just quickly filled 
the, uh, the news of the day. It was a powerful moment as the verdict was handed down. Guilty. First degree murder. And cheers and applause just roared outside the courtroom, that Hamilton courtroom, because justice finally had been served. Something horribly wrong and twisted had been in some small way set right again by that verdict. And scripture borrows the power of that image um, to describe the wonder of the cross. A gross injustice in the universe has been done. Trouble is, we're the guilty ones. Personally, communally, we bear this burden of guilt. We've participated in the injustice that has wrecked this world. So what is God gonna do about it? Is there any justice in this universe? And how will this injustice be rectified? And the stunning good news of the cross is that God, the judge, has taken upon himself our penalty. In the cross of Jesus Christ, we see God bearing our punishment so that we might go free. As Paul says here in Romans, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we're guilty, Christ died for us. We now have been justified by his blood. The underlying notion behind all this is this notion of justice and this understanding of God as a judge. And it tells us that there is a standard of justice woven into the fiber of this world and there is a coming judgment day when all those evils and injustices will be held to account and the judge of all things is God. And this is where a lot of people start getting uncomfortable with this image of the cross. Because so many people get offended by the sense of God sitting in judgment upon us. And then when you mix in God's anger, because Paul mentions that in this passage, God's wrath. When you mix in God's anger, it seems to get worse. And so people think, isn't this what the Bible always just throws at us? You know, a God who's angry and judgmental. He's always throwing people, punishing them, throwing them to hell. He even punishes his son. And for many people, maybe some of us here today, Christianity, I don't know, has a feel of being a leftover of some primitive religion in which the peevish gods demanded their pound of flesh to somehow calm down their wrath. And so many people in our postmodern world would say, I can't believe in a God who would do that. And as a minister of the gospel, I can say, I can't believe in a God like that either. Because that's not what the cross reveals to us. And so we need to rethink and think carefully through this image. Because saying that doesn't mean that we dismiss the reality of the wrath and judgment of God either. Actually, but I hope to show you, they're a good thing. You want that. You don't want a God who does not judge. You do not want a God who is somehow indifferent, who doesn't get angry about sin and injustice. And the truth, this truth, understanding what the Bible says about God's judgment and his wrath actually frees us, equips us, empowers us for living as people of peace in this world, and actually knowing the love of God. 
The Apostle Paul, who wrote this book of Romans, he's talking about living in peace. And he says, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how does that peace come to us? It comes to us when we were God's enemies, when we were guilty, when we stood opposed to God. Paul writes then, at just the right time, Christ died for us. What time was that? The right time was when we stood guilty as enemies of God. The right time for which Christ died for us was not when you know, we somehow got our act together and we proved our worth to Jesus so that Jesus would look at us and say, oh, of course, you're worthy of me dying for you. Yes, of course. No, that's not the right time. <clears throat> Because honestly, that never time comes. That time never comes about. The right time is when we are powerless to do anything to get in God's good graces. When we are impossibly stuck. When we're unable to change the status of our lives as guilty, complicit in the, the tragedy of this world. When we're enemies of God. At that moment, grace comes to us. Forgiveness comes. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross shows God's unwillingness to let our status as guilty enemies of God, he refuses to allow that status to remain. And so God seeks out to embrace us, to change that. And when God seeks out to embrace guilty people, enemies, the cross is the end result. What about the wrath of God, however? You know, Paul talks about being saved from God's wrath through the cross in this passage. It seems somehow tied up in this legal image, this judicial image. For many people, that, that image of God just doesn't compute with a God of love, a God who forgives. Why this anger and this vengeance and this violence of the cross? And this is a reality about God that we, we do need to come to grips with the judgment and anger of God towards sin. You know, the Old Testament is filled with the, the thoroughgoing understanding that God has a case against his people. Repeatedly, you hear throughout the Old Testament, a day is coming, and it is a day of judgment when God is going to destroy all that is evil. And that's just not an Old Testament Thing. People often say, oh, look at the Old Testament, you know, this God of wrath. New Testament, a whole different God. No, no, no. In the New Testament, there is still talk, the revelation that, that there is a wrath and anger of God, and it's a wrath that we need to be saved from. And frankly, that, that, that should terrify us. If, if hostility ever had a meaning, isn't it the wrath of God that will be poured out one day? His wrath on all that is sin? And the question is, who, who can rescue us from that? And the clear answer of this text, of all of Scripture, is only God. Only God can rescue us from, from that anger. Only God can balance the scales of justice. And you see that here in Romans 5. There's five different verbs, and they're all passive verbs. Verse 9, having now been justified, there's your first one, how much more shall we be saved, there's the second, if, verse 10, if we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, there's a third passive verb, to God through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled, there's number four, 
how much more have been reconciled will we be saved? There's five by his life, five passive verbs. All those actions we are being acted upon. And it is God, the Father, who is acting. God, the God of love. Because in verse 10, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, through his love. So God, the judge, is the one who is doing this, who is justifying, and who does so, as I said, out of love. Because verse 8 talks about that, how God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. And yet, this God of love is still mightily angry about sin. Now, that seems like a paradox, doesn't it? How can a God of love be so angry and full of wrath? What kind of loving God is filled with wrath? But think of your own self. Think of your own emotional life. Why do you get angry? I'm sure there's a variety of different reasons. Some healthy reasons for getting angry is because you love something. You hold something as dear. And if that thing, that person, is threatened or compromised, you get angry. In her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, Becky Pipper talks about this. And she says, think about how we feel when someone we love is being ravaged by some unwise action or relationship. We don't respond with a benign tolerance. Far from it. She says, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. It's apathy. It's like, I don't care. Pipper continues, she says, human love offers here for us a true analogy. If the more the father loves the son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. And she concludes, she says, you know what? If I, a narcissistic, flawed, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition that I love, how much more would a morally perfect God who made them? God's wrath is not this cranky explosion, but it is his settled opposition to the cancer of sin that is eating the insides of the human race, the race, the people he loves with his whole being. God's wrath, his anger against all that is wrong in this life, all that brings despair and darkness and destruction, that is what God is royally angry and opposed to. And despite all our discomfort with God's anger, his judgment of sin, think of this. What if those things, that wrath, that anger, was the very measure of what God was willing to endure as an expression of his love for you and me? Truth is, you don't want a God who doesn't get angry over sin. You don't want a God who who doesn't make judgments. That sort of God is not worthy of your worship if you care at all about justice in this world, if you seek an end to violence in this world, if you wish for peace in your life in this city, you want a God who judges. You want a God who stands opposed, a God of wrath. And there's a book by a a theologian, Miroslav Volf, called Exclusion and Embrace, and he helps unpack how that works. In the book, he explores some of the places of the world that are filled with hatred and violence, where where humans are just being torn apart, and he wonders, how is this all going to end? 
Like, how can this repeated cycle that we see end? And he's had firsthand experience. He's a Croatian, and he's seen up close and personal uh, the, the years of, of violence and then retaliation and this constant cycle. Um, and, and he says that cycle of violence is not fueled by a belief in a God of judgment. He says that is fueled, in fact, by a lack of a belief in a God of judgment and wrath. Here's what he writes. He says, quote, in a world of violence, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. He says, violence thrives, secretly nourished by the belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Which sits at odds for a lot of people in our culture. So many people in our culture believe that religion is what fuels the cycles of violence and makes it worse. It seems to somehow endorse or legitimize violence in the name of God. And so people conclude if we can just get rid of this notion of God, I think we might actually live at peace. If we could just get rid of the notion of judgment, there might be hope for nonviolence. But Miroslav Volf says, you know what, that is just naive. He says, imagine you are talking to some people who have suffered some grave injustice. People who have had their homes burned down, they've had their property confiscated, they have family members killed, they've had their wives and daughters raped. How are you gonna keep them, he asked, how are you gonna keep them from taking up guns and retaliating? being sucked up into the cycle of violence all over again. And he says, are, are you going to say to them, well, violence doesn't solve anything. We've got to set this aside. He says, not only does that moralizing leave people cold, but he says it, it, it shows no concern for justice. Something has to be done about all those injustices. Wolf says that the only resource he knows powerful enough to both pacify the human heart for justice and to keep us from getting sucked into a constant, continuous cycle of violence and vengeance and retribution is to say, there is a God who judges and he will put everything right because if you don't believe in a God who judges, who, who, if you don't believe in a God who is angry at injustice and is going to do something about it, the option you're left with is you take up the weapon, you take up the gun, and you exact justice. And here's the absolute wonder of the cross. Because in the cross, in this agonizing, in this violent death, Jesus Christ takes our judgments. In the cross, we see God bearing the just punishment we deserve, something that was ours, he took on so that we might be freed from the cycle of violence, so that we might know life. In a just world, justice must be done. There must be a verdict. There must be a punishment. But God does not impose that on us because he knows it would crush us, obliterate us. Instead, God takes it on himself. God's anger and the violence of the cross tell us how much he was willing to suffer for us, how much he loves us. 
It is because of the wrath of God, because he is a judge and exacts justice, that Jesus' proclamation of grace and love are so brilliant and astonishing. That's the deep magic of the cross. God couldn't just shrug off evil and say, eh, just humans being humans. No, the offense of sin is there. And our hearts cry out. Something has to be done. There must be accountability. There must be a penalty. But God is so loving that he willingly took that. So loving that he willingly died for you and me. And because of the sacrificial love of Jesus, we are changed. Something has happened in the cross. A verdict has been handed down, has been pronounced. And your status and my status is changed. God is a judge. And there is a judgment day coming, says scripture, the day of the Lord. But for a Christian, that judgment has already happened in the cross. It was on the cross. And because of it, the verdict on your life is forgiven. Freed from any penalty. Not guilty. You aren't who you were. You are no longer the guilty enemy of God. Your status has changed. You are declared justified. And that changes us. That has the power to free us in profound ways. This this deep magic of the cross, C.S. Lewis called it, the sacrificial substitution of Christ, when that sinks into your heart, there's something that shifts inside of you. Because you realize, I'm not who I was. I'm different. My status has changed. The verdict on my life has has changed. I'm welcome. I'm embraced. I'm God's dearly loved child. And and you see how that helps us to deal with some of those chronic, nagging senses of condemnation? You know that, right? You, You have these thoughts from the past of what you've done in the past. It can still make you blush today, can't it? You know, those thoughts, that that words of condemnation that haunt you, Satan or others bring those things back. You as a Christian can say, my judgment day is done. I am not condemned. I am forgiven. I am free from shame and guilt. You got to let the verdict of the cross sink in deeply and just change the dynamics of your heart. And here's how you know how the cross, that verdict is sinking into your life. Do you live the way of Jesus? When we understand the cross deeply in our lives, it, it, it develops this humility. It develops this concern for others around us. So we give ourselves for others. We serve, we give, we sacrifice. This whole image here is about justice. Why, why on earth should we be concerned about justice? Why should we take on the pain of others? Why should we serve those less fortunate? Why on earth should we take any of our resources, our time, and spend them for the sake of others? There's no other reason than the logic of the cross. When we act justly, when we show and demonstrate mercy and compassion, we are substituting ourselves for others. We are taking on the pain of others for their benefit. And we do this because we've first seen it in the cross where we have received what we did not deserve. We deserve penalty. We deserve punishment. But what we got was mercy. This is the cross. This is the way of Jesus who gave his life for... This is the grain of the universe. It is grace. 
So we become people of justice and mercy through the cross when you fully understand that the substitutionary love of God in Jesus, you get thrust into the world with joy, not needing to, 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 to help people to somehow make you feel better, but wanting to, to resemble and delight in the Lord who has saved you, who has done so much for you. The cross gives us the deepest resources to be people of justice and compassion. So look to the cross, linger there, dwell, look on the mysterious beauty of the cross until you see the beauty of God taking the form of a crucified man. Contemplate the divine love of God in the cross, which is our only hope of salvation. Take in the crucified Christ because this is who God is. Come to the cross of Jesus to find God, the crucified God, the living God. Let's pray. The cross is this paradox, God. At first blush, at first sight, it is, it is a horror. It's an atrocity. But as we look deeper and deeper to it, God, we see it is stunning. It is a wonder. The cross is not about the appeasement of, you, of, of some monster God who is in need of a pound of flesh. No, the cross reveals the truth of you. A God of mercy and love and compassion. A God of justice. In the cross, we see that you would rather die than kill your enemies. We see you absorbing our sin, taking our rap. We see the lengths to which your love will go to forgive God, would you keep us near that place, near the cross? Father, we pray, show us Jesus, our crucified Savior. He carried our sorrows. He was smitten. He was afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And so by those wounds, we are now healed. Thank you, God. Thank you that our judgment day has already come. Thank you that through Jesus, we are welcomed, not as enemies, but as your loved children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.